This episode was brought to you by the people on Patreon. Dave, Greg, Ryan, Dan, Ian Urza, Kevin, James, Ashley, Greg and Pearl, Joel, Brian, Amy, Ian West, and Trey. Stick around for an extended shout out at the end. Now on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty sidekick. Jackson the son, excited to take a deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. Uh, and doubly excited to talk with the Phantom Galaxy crew about something decidedly less ice piratey. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with ice pirates, buddy. So, we are a spoiler podcast. It's no we Dark do... Star, but... <laughs> oh, yes. don't even go there. Um... <laughs> We do spoil the movies we discuss, and for this episode, we are celebrating the 35th anniversary of David Cronenberg's remake of The Fly. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. weird hairs that were growing out of your back I, I had them analyzed but they were definitely not human if you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person too when you saw her socially no you're afraid to be destroyed and recreated aren't you you're changing Seth everything about you is changing oh no what's happening to me am I dying I want to know what's going on what does the disease want? It wants to turn me into something else. Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. It could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Do this right. We first called in a film critic, fellow podcaster, and apparently a man that watched Food of the Gods with his family from the Phantom Galaxy podcast, Mr. Nathan Bartleball. Wait a minute. What did I do? I was listening to one of your episodes today. Was it Food of the Gods you watched with your family? No, 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 I did not. Oh, well, the, okay. the, I feel like the original Food of the Gods is pretty tame, though, like the one from the 70s. Um, you I saw it as a kid on television. some pretty rough stuff with your family. You mean as a kid or yeah. with my current family? No, oh, yes, you're... as a kid, yes. Oh, you'll hear more about that tonight. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did see. You were exactly right. Food of the Gods 2 I saw when I was in elementary school. Oh, uh, Food of the Gods 2. <laughs> which the is the one with all the, which is, is the R-rated one with all the junk in it. The The other one used to play on television, and I think it's probably a PG rating, the, uh, the, the one from the 70s. <laughs> okay. So, Food of the Gods 2 you watch with your family. Yes. Yes, the one As, with the, uh, uh, the nudity and the violence, not, not not to be mistaken for the mild one. <laughs> and how old were you at the time, Nathan? Oh, man, that was probably a like fourth or fifth grade. So uh, what's the math there? At 10, 10, 11. And didn't you say you were raised in a Baptist home? I was. Wow. No wonder the Southern Baptist Convention has fallen apart this oh, week. Boy. So, all right. So. <laughs> 
and of course, the co-host of Land of the Creeps and Phantom Galaxy, Mr. Bill Van Vega, who was gracious enough to join us before he goes on his sojourn out into the woods. And Bill, haven't you seen enough slashers to know avo- to avoid the woods? No, I embrace <laughs> it. Bring it on. I will. I will not be drinking. I quit that four years ago. I will not get horny. I will not go to the water. I will not leave without anybody saying, oh, oh the outhouse is over there. I, that will not be me. You better write all this stuff down on your arm. I think there's a few you might not remember. <laughs> yeah, Plus, never say I won't be and, back, Bill. And, and yeah. as, far as, back, yeah. uh, as far as Food of the Gods 2, it was shot in Toronto. So I feel an aching towards that film. Half of the crap we've been watching lately has been shot in Toronto, Toronto. Bill. I'm just saying. (laughs) There were very nice tax benefits to shooting films in the early 80s. After all these (laughs) movies, I'm starting to feel like I got shot in Toronto. But, um... Plus, Bill goes, Bill's going in the camping in a camper, so he's safe from the slashers, but a werewolf or a rawhead rex will probably tip it over and knock him into the... Exactly. Oh, you, know. <laughs> uh, you know, haven't you seen enough of these films? The, the the one guy always survives. It's never the girl. It's always the smart guy, isn't it? He leaves his wife behind and runs you're out. You're throwing your wife under the bus, and you're saying, hey, you're going to survive? No, no, under the camper. <laughs> under the camper, yeah. You're going you're gonna to get squatched, Bill. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> I'll probably die from, like, a mutant squirrel or something. You know, get... uh, oh, man. So the IMDb synopsis of The Fly reads, A brilliant but eccentric scientist begins to transform into a giant man-fly hybrid after one of his experiments goes horribly wrong. Eh, you know, for IMDb, that's not horrible. It's a Uh, nice generic outline. Yeah, yeah. So, Nathan... They copied and pasted it from the 50s movie. Yeah, they they probably did. So, Nathan, when did you first see The Fly? Well, we've already discussed the fact that Baptists aside, we were we appreciated our art. Um, I saw this in the summer of 1987, I believe, because this is 1986, right? So this would come out, and I was so I was probably about my son's age when I saw this movie, about nine years old, and uh, which was entirely too young. Uh, obviously, I didn't think I saw the whole thing, but I saw enough of it that the, my main memory. And then that was the summer when I also ended up seeing Aliens for the first time. And this movie and then Stand By Me were the probably the big standout movies that summer. You know, I'm sure I saw plenty of kids' films, but I don't remember those. <laughs> I remember The Fly, <laughs> Aliens, and Stand By Me. And the main thing I remember The Fly is it's the only movie I'm pretty certain it ever made me actually throw up. Uh <laughs> <laughs> this was at the end of a long day. This is the end of like a, it was near the 4th of July. It's probably around the time, this about this time. And uh, there was, it was a big day. You know, we had hot dogs and watermelon and stuff like that. And so, and I remember the other movie we watched that day was Jaws 3, which was, you know, oh. terrible. <laughs> a different kind of make you sick. And we get to the end of the day. And uh, there's a point when Brundlefly decides to do his educational video. And, oh. um, I was pretty much done, and I was feeling the movie was making me feel sick on a lot of different levels, <laughs> and then I just lost it. <laughs> so I cannot eat any piece of food that a fly lands on since this movie. <laughs> I can't not do it. No, 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 no. And and by the way, folks, if you're in the Baltimore area, Nathan is a deacon at the First Baltimore Church, uh, Baptist Church. Um, <laughs> I'm not a deacon uh, anymore. <laughs> <but> okay, I, was. <laughs> I wasn't 
discommunicated or excommunicated or dislocated or transmutated or whatever happens. Oh, uh, so Bill, when did you first see the fly? Well, us liberal Catholics, we do it whenever we're, we feel like it, right? <laughs> no emphasis on it. So go on. Oh, uh, well, I mean, if you've seen the Monty Python skit, you just kiss the woman and you have a kid, right? So, um, the fly probably, I mean, I was 12 when it came out, so I didn't see it in the theater, but I would have seen it as soon as it came out on VHS. So I don't know what time of the year it was, but it would have been like around 13 or so. Yeah. Whenever, you know, I don't, I can't recall back then how long the turnaround was between theater to VCR, unless it was a direct to video. Not as young maggot as I was. No, I was, (laughs) I was old enough that I probably pulled it off the shelf and said, dad, let's get it while we're at the video store. So. Uh, yeah, I remember watching it and I remember not knowing really who Cronenberg was. I mean, I hadn't gotten into rabbit and all that kind of stuff, but knowing. And you you call yourself a proud Canadian. (laughs) At that point, you're happy. You're not watching Thundercats. All right. This was a real (laughs) movie. So I I watched it and I remember being, uh, you know, the, the scene with the vomit, you obviously remember, but there's a few scenes in this film watching it again you can't help but smile. And I'll get into that later. But the fact that the body horror was so strong, I loved that element to it. And, you know, thinking myself a bit of a bright kid, I don't know where that ever went, but I like the science element of it as well. And so that worked off well. Plus just being a fan, even at that age of the horror genre itself, I thought it was cool. But I also remember thinking it was a smart movie. Even at that age, this was Mm -hmm. a cut, this was a cut above Chud. You know, (laughs) know, that's high praise, Bill. (laughs) So, so, you know, it's one of those ones where, you know, you might not. As good as Bud the Chud. That's the question, right? (laughs) As much as, you know, I love a good schlocky horror. This one, if you don't get all the concepts right away, you know, when it makes you think, you know, this is one that's worth rewatching, even as a 12 or 13 year old. So I really enjoyed it. Jackson, what about you? Uh, the first time I watched The Fly, I want to say two two years ago now. So um, in 2019, I guess. I wanted to say 2018 there, but because some part of me still believes it's 2020. But um, anyway, Matt, Matt, how can you let him go till he was 17 before watching The Fly? Hey, man, he, he chooses his own path, bub. <laughs> he doesn't peer go. pressure. He doesn't no. peer pressure me into watching Jeff Goldblum vomit on his food. No. I think that's Nine not necessarily old. a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I'd always, growing up, I'd always heard of the, you know, the big three, the whole, the holy trinity of practical effects. And that, you know, those are American Werewolf in London, The Thing, and The Fly. That was the gold standard. Um, so naturally, I watched all three in one day, and it was glorious. And then you uh, watch Street Trash, and you're like, mm. yes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so maybe CGI isn't so bad after all. I'll never have to see that. <laughs> but um, you know, believe it or not, The Fly wasn't the first Cronenberg film I I sought out. Um, my first exposure to Cronenberg, um, in any real sense, was believe it or not, Videodrome. And I don't I don't know how. Well, I guess wow. before that, his cameo in Jason X. <laughs> But I don't know how recently you guys have seen Videodrome, but I think even the the biggest Cronenberg fans can 
can admit that uh, for the unacquainted with the director and or the young and impressionable youth, you know, it can be a pretty hard movie to sit it's through. It's getting dumped into the deep end for sure. Yeah. 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 That's yeah, a deep absolutely. dive into the... Uh... <laughs> They're like, have fun. This is Cronenberg. <laughs> it's like, be, we're, we're not going to check up on you. Yeah, like, you're, 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 you'll never think of Deborah Harry in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Well, uh, anyways, regardless of that traumatic <laughs> event, I, I loved both the Videodrome and The Fly. I've seen The Fly three times now, um, including watching it this week for the podcast. And I love it so much uh, that I actually included it in my top 10 horror films of the 80s list that I made on Letterboxd right below. Um, and I know Nathan will enjoy this right below Fright Night on my list. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it left quite an impression on me. Uh, I enjoy it quite a bit. I think it's pretty much, uh, aside from a few character things, I think it's pretty much a perfect movie, um, but it's not for the faint of heart, uh, even though it is probably Cronenberg's most accessible film. Yeah, up to that point, but for sure. And I, I saw this in the theater when it came out in August of 1986. Um, I was 14. For some reason, when I was 13 um, in 1985, my parents kind of unlocked the gates and let me see whatever I wanted to see. My local theater was like less than a quarter of a mile from my house. And they knew the owner and they basically said, ah, just let him see whatever he wants to see. And so I could see anything and I saw the fly on opening weekend. And oh man. So the plot and the screenplay. Um, we have Jeff Goldblum as scientist Seth Brundle, who meets a science journalist boy, I thought I've had some boring jobs, um, played by <laughs> Gina Davis, who works for, you know, God bless his heart. Um, it seems like every, you know, gig he has, John Getz is a perpetual D-bag. Um, they meet at a party and he claims to have a groundbreaking invention, which is a teleporter. And once he experiments with it, a fly gets into one of the pods and fuses their DNA. Um, which, you know, I have all kinds of questions about. But anyway, Nathan, what did you think of the plot and screenplay of The Fly, originally penned by Charles Edward Pogue and then rewritten by Cronenberg? And Pogue, by the way, also wrote Psycho 3, DOA, and Dragonheart. So he's got some chops, but what did you think? I think it's terrific. I think that it's... It's it's fantastically written. It's also very and it's hard to pull the this is the kind of movie that's so visceral that watching it again and really being able to appreciate it's hard to almost pull the screenplay and the script and everything outside of everything that's happening on screen, you know, because so much of what's effective is down to some of the casting and the acting and the special effects. But just just the construction of the film from that perspective, it's so it's much more economical than I remembered it uh, in terms of what it's doing. And it's so much more um, intimate than I remembered it. So something that dawned on me is that this movie starts immediately from the moment those two people first meet. Mm -hmm. It begins with the first minute of their relationship and it ends with the last minute of their relationship. And the screen oh, comes up and goes black directly after those two things happen. There is no... There's no opening scene of the streets of New York or anything as they come to the, you know, or the, the city streets as they're walking into the building. There's not Seth Brundle looking at his machine. There's not her and, uh, you know, there's no aftermath after those scenes. The screen mm -hmm. just goes dark. So it's an encapsulated relationship. And even though we get scenes with the two of them obviously not together, 
it never really leaves the context of of their interaction. So in that way, it's that's kind of a particularly for 1986, that's kind of an unusual thing for a horror film to do to be that close and intimate. And look at the deaths. I mean, how many people, you know, outside of a baboon and there's really one, I mean, there's some horrible things that happen. There's really one death. Um, yeah. you know, in in the film and there's no monster on the rampage moments or anything like that. The horror though is a lot deeper for other reasons. And then uh, from a screenwriting perspective, I think what's interesting is you look at the old 1950s fly and it's such it's it's a beautifully silly idea, right? Like the way it's executed is wonderfully kooky for the 50s. You know, the way I, I don't know if we're too concerned about spoilers here, are we for the no, movie? No, you're not. Go for no. it. So in that one, you know, he goes into the machine and he comes out and he's got one. He's got the head of the fly and the arm of the fly and the fly has his arm and his head. And it's a goofy movie. I, I truly love it, but it's very, very silly. And it doesn't really try to play the science stuff seriously. Here it does. And I and it does some interesting things, even in the way they have Seth Brundle explain what his machine does. That scene is, you can never make that scene not boring. You know, a couple times mm -hmm. they managed to do it. Uh, you know, even Spielberg goes, sends it on the ride to show how the dinosaurs were made. And while we're kind of enjoying it, there's Goldblum again. But, you know, while we're kind of enjoying it, we're still sitting there listening to all this gobbledygook. And now you, you know why uh, Jeff Goldblum was against genetic tampering in Jurassic Park, because he'd already been <laughs> through the fly. But here, it's weird. The, the scene happens so early on, and he's just explaining what this machine does. But it's almost like a pickup line, right? Like, it's his yeah. flirting with her, and their relationship is building, and they're developing while that's happening. I was like, that's pretty smart, because we're not sitting there. We're getting all this information but the movie doesn't stop for it. So even in that little bit, I was really impressed with it. So I think it's an excellent script, and I think it really pays homage to almost every universal horror movie you can think of. I mean, Seth Brundle mm -hmm. at some point, like, and even a few outside the universal market, you know, there's a there's a little bit of a hunchback here. There's a Phantom of the Opera. There's the creature from the Black Lagoon. There's the werewolf, the oh, Frankenstein's yeah. monster, Dracula. They're all sort of all here at different points. And... I think there's a lot in this script that harkens back to Altered States, which is another movie I really like. But I think this movie takes some of the things that were wrong with Altered States and kind of finesses them and uh, and addresses them and creates a movie that's a little more intimate and a little more heartfelt. To me, Altered States always kind of kept me just a little bit of a remove emotionally. Yep. Me too. Yep, me too. Great points, as always, Nathan. So... All right, Bill, what did you think of the screenplay and plot of The Fly? Well, I found it interesting that for a film of a decent budget, of the notoriety it gets, of the popularity it gets, it's really a two, two-and-a-half-man play. Because yeah. there's Goldblum, there's Gina Davis, and from time to time there's John Getz. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. So, you know, as I read upon about the film, we'll get into it later, but this could be a stage play if you had the production in the right uh, place to do it. If you mm -hmm. had the right theater, this could be done as a stage play almost. Because, and there's not even a lot of different locations. It's almost pretty much in that, you know, that a studio apartment or the industrial apartment, however you want to call it. And occasionally she goes and sees John Getz in his office because he's the editor. And that's about it. Yeah. So 
that kind of shows you I've always been attracted to films or that single location type, small location type mm-hmm. film that I really like this. The other person in this cast that nobody mentioned that I smiled from ear to ear. The moment I saw him was George Chevalo. Mm. When I saw George Chevalo, I just smiled because anybody not familiar with George Chevalo, it's Canadian heavyweight boxer, bought Maha- uh, fought Muhammad Ali twice, once pre-war, once post-war, is, it might be the only man to have been in 24 rounds and was never once knocked down by, by Ali. Wow. The man is a tough man. And whenever you see Ali's list of top 10 fights he's ever been in, guarantee a Shivalo fight is about number four, and the other Shivalo fight is at about number eight or nine. So he got he's one of these guys in his tragic story. His sons have all committed suicide, like rough, wow. rough story. But he's... He's an affable guy. And when you see his wrist snap. <laughs> oh, this, that, yes. This yeah. big man crying as the huh. front part of his wrist is snapped out of his arm. I'm laughing. But other than those first three and maybe Shivalo, I mean, there's seven characters, basically. And David Cronenberg as the gynecologist. You know, <laughs> like this, I like right. it. And as far as the uh, the script, I saw a little bit of the making of. And... They said the original script, as Nathan pointed out, is hammy. It's a little, you know, 50 sci-fi-ish. But apparently was very close to the original short story. So the first script was written almost, I wouldn't say word for word, but concept by concept as the story. So the guy that took over the writing the second time around had to say, if I'm going to do this, I want to kind of make it more of a, this means this. Uh, you know, it's a representation rather than a literal. Right. And it was Mel Brooks who was producing the movie. He took his name off of it because he wanted to make sure that people didn't think it was a comedy and he loved the original. Um, but Cronenberg was the guy who came in and, you know, kind of cleaned up the script and took it to the next level. But yeah, it, it, I, 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 I think it's an amazing script. And Mel Brooks had co-wrote, or not co-wrote, co-financed earlier The Elephant Man. Yep. Yeah, David yeah. Lynch and Cronenberg. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, and Mel Brooks has got these great, are similar, too. They they are. And Brooks has a great eye for talent. He just does. And it's, you know, it's, you know, uh, it's strange that you said, you know, Bill, that this could be a stage play. And, of course, what was Mel Brooks's kind of second career? was kind of relaunching on Broadway. Hence the producers, right? Yeah. But but it was funny. I heard a story from the guy that was the original writer. I think it was either the writer or the producer or the financer. And Mel Brooks apparently read about the first 10 pages, didn't care for what happened at the beginning of the story. And the guy that wrote the, wrote the stage play or the stage play, the script said, did you actually read the whole script? And he goes, <laughs> I don't need to. I'm a genius. What I say goes... <laughs> <laughs> but but he decided to read through it all and okay, I'm good with it. But yeah, yeah. I think it's a great but um Jackson, what do you think? I I think the writing is is quite good. Lots of memorable quotes, but um more more than that, I think it works as a serious drama and romance film, um, which is a welcome surprise, not something you'd expect from the original and from the title and the poster. Um 
but but it's a, it's a it's a really human movie. I think it's it's what makes Brundle's transformation all the more uh, uh, horrifying. But the whole thing is very existential. Like at what point does Jeff Goldblum lose his former self and become like a new being entirely? Mm-hmm. Become the Brundle fly? And like the idea of being disintegrated and reintegrated raises quite a few more questions, like existential well, questions you, you, about you the individuality. Argue he lost himself even before that with his obsession, right? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, do I, I we wanna, ever? I was do say, we I ever see ask, the real Brundle? I want to see live or Memorex. I want to ask Jackson or Matt <laughs> if you know any bug politicians. <laughs> Not me. My dad might. I don't know. You work with Gingrich, right? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I did work with Gingrich. Let's pass that by. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jackson, <laughs> I'm not going to comment. Um, uh i was just you know like as i understand from what you and bill were talking about earlier there was a script written as soon as cronenberg got involved like massive rewrites took place i have no idea what the script looked like before but i'm 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 really happy with what we ended up with i think it's honestly i think it's a beautiful script it's so much more grounded and relatable emotionally uh, than the other two Cronenberg Cronenberg films I've seen. I've seen Videodrome, as I mentioned earlier, and and um, The Brood, and I think that this is a little bit more relatable emotionally. Yeah, well, and and to Cronenberg's credit, um, Mel Brooks wanted to take the original screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue off of the credits, and and Cronenberg said no. He said, you know, I built everything from what he wrote. And he said, well, but what he wrote, is, as Bill said earlier, was like, well, but it was a little sillier. It was a little, he, he said, I don't care. I never I couldn't have not written this script without mm-hmm. that outline. If, and if he you, insisted if, that he stay on the credits. If you go to Wikipedia, it breaks down the difference between Pogue's draft and Cronenberg's draft. Mm-hmm. And it, it, some things were kept over. You couldn't completely start from scratch. So he says you know, as Matt noted, if I'm going to get a credit on this, so should he. Yep. And he's first build, right? Like in the opening credits, it said Charles yeah, Pogue yep. and David Cronenberg. So that was, that was really nice of Cronenberg to, and also, I mean, to, to be fair, I mean, it, he probably also did it because they didn't want to say David Cronenberg for everything, like first build on everything written, directed, you know, catered um, by David yeah, Cronenberg. Catered, catered <laughs> <David> Cronenberg. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, and also let me just say before we move on, I, I'm ashamed, but I started but never finished The Elephant Man. Should I be oh, should I not go to sleep finish. tonight? Without no. Finish it and then you come over to Phantom it. Galaxy and talk. I about sensed it. a sad, yeah. a sad ending coming, so I didn't. Oh, I just you will. It will get dusty. It will get dusty in the room. Um, okay. That being said, so it is a brilliant. Somebody's cutting onions somewhere. It is a brilliant movie. Nathan, are you with me on that? I'm with you. I, I mean. Yeah, I think it's a masterpiece movie. And it's another case of David Lynch unlynching himself a little bit uh, and showing that he can deliver something. I mean, to me, every movie has his essence in it that he's made. But that movie in a straight story so that he can put aside the things that people point to him and say. That and the straight story are the two things where you show that David Lynch showed, no, I can make a movie for mainstream. You're too weird. Uh, okay, you could never make a G-rated Disney movie. Right. Here, hold my beer or right. or quinoa or whatever it has. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, this you know, and I think looking at the differences, Pogue probably was responsible for a lot of it having that kind of neo-gothic 
and even classic monster feel that is that retained there, you know, because I think not all, you know, some of that I don't know was Cronenberg's. You know, I think those those big flourishes that happen in the story probably belong a little bit more to him. Um, not completely. Cronenberg comes in and he gives it that really grounded science, not even science, but, you know, and I, I've read statements from Cronenberg from his perspective as an atheist. He, he he said he's never going to make a supernatural movie. And for the most part, I think that's been true of his career, that he wouldn't take something as ghosts because ghosts would suggest an afterlife and so on and so forth. And that's interesting because in the deterioration of Seth Brundle, he never once questions anything about his soul. You never have characters, you know, some of that would seemingly pop up. And in the 50s movies, it was almost boilerplate that you have to have that, right? Even though it didn't necessarily always fit, you'd have characters make some statement about you're going against God. They never had these discussions in The Fly. Um, right. it, even Seth Brundle, even though you see him, he d is obsessed to a degree, he kind of balances some of that. You know, even the moment when he goes into the machine seems to be more down to this feeling that he's going to lose this one person he's had in his life and he's almost making this snap judgment more than he really wants to see what's on the other side. You know, it's it's it, it, it's interesting because I feel they keep him pretty human and pretty relatable. Mostly, I think, so you can feel the pain that comes later on. Right. And he's drinking at the time and yeah. all that other kind of stuff. And yeah, he's never a mad scientist. Even even towards the end, he's still when he's fighting the fly impulses, you know, the bug politician speech. for example. Oh, you know? well, well, we're a spoiler podcast. So, I mean. There is that. I mean, the end scene is heartbreaking. Yeah. And the end scene, he basically, if I remember correctly, almost lifts the gun to his head. He does. Yep. Right. He, and he's like, pulls it up with a yeah, pincer. It actually presses it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bill, I don't want to leave you out of this. David nope. Lynch, real quick. Are you a Lynch fan? I am. And I recently We're saw working for the, on it. I saw for the, <laughs> I saw for the first time Eraserhead. Oh, and I like yeah, his, his nightmare about childhood, having that, a child. Yeah, it was an interesting film. I liked it aesthetically. I at a certain point, I stopped taking notes because like it's useless. <laughs> so just enjoy just enjoy it for the cerebral for the it's out there. It's the WTF moments and just enjoy. And I really enjoyed it. Well, Bill, I yeah. got to ask you, do you yep. eat them like normal chickens? <laughs> <laughs> if my knife is sharp enough maybe <laughs> i it, it was the weirdest thing because i've said this before on the podcast i got to meet david lynch a couple times and had lunch with him one time he doesn't curse um he says things like golly and <laughs> I can he, see him saying "Oopsie Daisy." Yes, he is. Whoopsie Daisy. He, yeah, he <laughs> is like he is like Kyle McLaughlin's character from Twin Peaks. <laughs> I mean, he is exactly that person. I'm pretty sure Kyle McLaughlin. I I don't know Kyle McLaughlin. My brother does. Um, they were neighbors. Um, but Kyle McLaughlin basically said he built Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks off of David Lynch. Well, as long as David Lynch is not like the agent he played, where he was always screaming, yeah. what did you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he is, he's, he is a weird dude. There's no doubt about that. But he is one of the friendliest, happiest, most joyous human beings I've ever met. Which is weird, considering the movies he's done. <laughs> but he really is. I mean, he's just he's just like the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. 
But but he's genuinely nice. It's not a facade. No, he is genuinely nice. Um, from the first time he called me, and he has a really high pitched voice. And I get this call. I thought it was a prank at first. He goes, "Hey Matt, this is David Lynch," and I'm like. Yeah, sure it is. You know, I'm like, and he starts talking. I'm like, oh, crap, this is David Lynch. And, and you know, <laughs> and so we started talking and then we had lunch because he wanted a deal. Um, he wanted an Elvis song that Lieber and Stoller owned, who I worked for. And and he didn't want to pay full price for it because it was a movie called Wild at Heart. And it was a fairly low budget movie. And and so we put together a lunch. He's like, well, where do you want to have lunch? I was like, you know, I said, Jerry and Mike are willing, you know, to take you out to lunch at La Dome, which was like the place to go in L.A. at that time. He's like, he picked Bob's big boy. He picked Bob's big boy. Yeah. <laughs> he, did. Yeah. he said he used to have lunch there like every day or something. Every like, day. Or every day. He was there. And it, it was bizarre. And it, but it was just he was the nicest guy. And so anyway, yeah, that's that's Lynch. I, I have no I have no stories about Cronenberg. I never met him. But anyway, um, I did have this question over and over again about even when I watched this film in the theater. So, you know, the big spoiler is that um, Seth Brundle transports with a fly. The computer gets you know, uh, confused and it, it mixes the flies DNA with Jeff Goldblum, Seth Brundle. How many microbes are in that pod? <laughs> Wouldn't it I be think like the same thing. an ear mite and Seth mm -hmm. Brundle or whatever? I mean, <laughs> it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that, well, the scene, he makes a statement. I don't know why I'm, it's pointless to defend madness to defend these sorts of things, but he does make a statement that, uh, you know, the, the, the system basically picked up that there were two life forms in the pod. Maybe everything else was so small that it didn't count. You know, maybe, maybe Seth okay. knew that and said, Oh, okay, we got to make sure you're not picking up microbes. So hey, maybe, maybe the fly was I... just big enough. I'll buy it. I, you know what? I'll bite. I, I, I was messaging Peter Nielsen back and forth a couple of weeks ago about Blade Runner. And we were saying, I, I told him, I said, okay, here's the question I have. And I love Blade Runner. So this is not an attack. I just have a real question. Cause I know that's Peter's favorite film. I said, mine too. Why are, is, you, you know, why are they testing people to see whether they're replicants when the next scene, they already have their pictures. What? In Blade Runner, when Harrison Ford is called in with M.M. at Walsh, he's saying he, he's showing them the pictures of the runaway oh, replicants. When they're when they're interviewing the guy and he shoots and escapes. Yeah, that's what you're talking it's about? like well, okay. they already had their pictures. Well, technically, those pictures are now after he's shot them. You know, but you're right. Like, wouldn't they have them off of the the ship unless? They didn't, and now they've they got their They obviously had the pictures from, like, beginning because they're, like, wearing skull caps like they were just produced. It just seems like, the uh, I guess, I guess uh, detectives in L.A. are just like detectives in L.A. now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, was, I was not attacking. I love Blade Runner. I was asking. I mean, that's not the only up. hole in Blade Runner. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, now, before we get too far in with Well, oh, yeah, there is the whole thing. I'm sorry, Bill, but there's no this worries. whole thing. It's like... Why is Harrison Ford pretending to be a reporter when he knows it's a replicant? Why doesn't he just shoot Joanne Wally in the face when he first meets her? The whole city's replicants, I assume. And uh, that uh, maybe explains everything. Anyway. 
All right, go ahead, Bill. I'm I was, was going to say, no worries. Uh, I'm going to give full credit to this to Wikipedia because I didn't know. Apparently, um, Cronenberg wasn't supposed to be the person to uh, direct this film. Right. Hmm. It was so. It was supposed to be a guy called Robert Bierman, who had done some hmm. short films or something. And Cronenberg is who they wanted initially. For Cronenberg was attached to Total Recall. Right. Oh, yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah. And it, it didn't, for whatever reason, I don't know the ins and outs, it didn't work out. Now, Robert Bierman was getting ready to uh, shoot the film and his daughter died in an accident. He was a British director, oh, but his family was in South Africa and she died in, a, I think, a car accident of some sort. And so he went back and they held production for like three months to see what the status was. And he decided at that point he's going to be with his family or circumstances being what they are. He had to step out and it didn't work with total recall. So Cronenberg suddenly became available again and that's how they got. And that's when the, the, the script was rewritten and all that kind of stuff, because once he got involved, he got his hands involved in the film. Wow. Well, and you know, you know, shout out to Mel Brooks for picking a guy who'd done the brood you know, and rabbit and Videodrome and scanners. scanners. Yeah, exactly. One assumes that maybe the dead zone was what he was looking at when he made this decision, which I think is an underrated film. Oh, I, I think it, I dead zone and the fly are probably right up there. Oh. as my two favorites of, of Cronenberg. So. And I love history of violence as well, but I mean, yeah, it's, I think I, um, Joe Dante on his podcast, his co-host, wrote history of violence and joe dante made i don't know if it was a slip of the tongue he said i think dead zone is his best film (laughs) (laughs) um well that's i think when we get to the acting element that's going to be interesting because you know christopher walken and jeff goldblum two guys that are very much known for their eccentricities and their you know affectations and things like that and i think cronenberg gets their gets gives them like their most human and most relatable performances Absolutely. And so that brings us to great segue to talking about the cast. Let's talk about Jeff Goldblum, who, you know, um, everything from he he's kind of a supporting character in the 70s, Death Wish to Nashville to a memorable scene at Annie Hall. Body Snatchers. Yeah, yeah, and Body Snatchers. Yeah, absolutely. But he really breaks out in the 80s and 90s, right, as kind of a leading person. So. Nathan, thoughts on Mr. Goldblum? I love Jeff Goldblum. And I mean, I, and I, I also liked Jeff Goldblum when it wasn't super cool, you know, I guess, yeah. to like the, that 80s time frame. The first movie I ever saw him in, and, and incidentally, Gina Davis, was Transylvania 65,000. Which is a great—I love that movie. I, I know do it's too. not funny. I know it's not great, but it's sweet. It is. And, you know, I, I, Dave Becker's doing his list of his, like, not-so-guilty pleasures. That movie would be on mine. And, I you know, do. I, as a as a younger kid, I had a love of vampires. And I got to say that the, 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 the love of vampires didn't start with Dracula. It didn't start with... with uh, Jerry Dandridge and Fright Night. It started with Gina Davis in that outfit. Transylvania <laughs> <laughs> six five thousand. And and uh, let me not make this about Gina Davis. We'll save that. But yes. Oh, that outfit is still something. But oh. but Goldblum, he has such an. And I remember when LOTC did their crushes episode, and you know, you mentioned the female crushes, and I mentioned Gina Davis. But I also, you know, not from the 
the the the attraction angle. But you know, Goldblum's the guy. He has a very distinct screen presence. Yes, now it's become almost its own meme and its own joke. Mm-hmm. But in the eight, you know, once he got Wes Andersonized, but before that. You know, he had this screen presence just nobody else really had. And it's right there. All the stuff he's doing in Jurassic Park, the weird hand affectations. That's happening. in. there's a movie, I think it was before this, Into the Night with Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. It's kind of a poor poor man's after hours, but I still like it. And uh, he's got a couple movies he did after this, Vibes with... with, with uh, Cindy, Cindy. Lauper. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not great, but I mean, I basically he did the Tall Man with Emma, um, Emma Thompson. I, lots I, I, of movies I noticed that, you skipped over Earth Girls Are Easy. Well, I hadn't got to Earth Girls <laughs> oh. Easy that was that was. I think and the movies Nick I mentioned Frost. were were yeah. I think these were pre, Frost. Yeah, Frost and Earth Girls Are Easy. I think were after this, and I was almost glad to see Earth Girls Are Easy because it made me feel a little bit better about the whole Gina Davis <laughs> Jeff Goldblum relationship after this movie. I was like, oh. Maybe it kind of works out after all, but this, um, he's so good in this movie. And I don't, I honestly think he's never been better than he is in this movie because he gets to do his Goldblum thing and he works through that makeup. I mean, he avoids coming off like miracle max for the most part. You know what I mean? Like when he's in the heavy, deep makeup, he still give, uh, this isn't, I don't think he was, but he should have been nominated for, for, an Academy Award, I would say, for this movie. I mean, I think he was. I agree. That good. He is all the way through, and yeah. and he and he watching it this time, I realized he never quite becomes sinister as sinister as I always thought he oh. was. And when I saw it years ago, I kept thinking that once he becomes basically because of that scene where he goes into the bar and picks the girl up, and this was a typical thing in the in the the eighties that when the guy gets the superpower, the hide power, he kind of becomes real kind of sleazy. Goldblum. In most of his movies, it's always maybe in real life. He's always balancing that charm and sleaze. You know, and at the same time, there's a weird kind of thing going on with Goldblum. And mm-hmm. you look at it like Jurassic Park. Malcolm is Ian Malcolm is sleazier than than Seth Brundle. You oh, know? absolutely. But when he has that line, when he just looks at Gina Davis, he says, oh, there was a fly in the trail." Oh, it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's, it is heartbreaking. He and, sells it. He completely yes. sells it. He sells that, and he sells, I have one magic word for you, cheeseburger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, but he's he comes off he comes off dorkier, is what I'm trying to say, like in yeah. those earlier parts than I remembered him being. He comes off as insecure. He comes off as sincere. And if, again, for a mad scientist guy, it seems like, oh, he really does love the girl. And, you know, even towards the end, you even and when he learns that there's a baby involved, you know, and oh, he's, he's, that he's, line he's, was... Oh, well, all together will be more human than it is just like, yeah. oh, because you want to kill me is that yeah. you you want to kill the last part of me. And it's just it's it's it, but under all that makeup, he still shines through and watch and Goldblum, even though he's got a following and you're right, he he kind of was a star. He never even after Jurassic Park, even after Independence Day, he never quite broke out, you know, um, and he. He makes movies that are even very good, good. Like movies like Hideaway. You know, I like yeah. Hideaway because he has oh, the presence. He, and he, he almost steals scenes in Thor Ragnarok. Oh, he does. He does. Yeah. yeah. I view this, there's almost two different Goldblooms. That's the Goldbloom that is fully sort of aware that he is, a, he, like, he's his own national treasure. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, when he steps out there, he's like, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, or, or, exactly. Are you, right. are you yes. more a fan of Goldbloom in nine months? Oh, I I, yeah. I I love him. I 
I like him in everything. I do too. I can't think of things that I don't love him in. Bill, what's your opinion of Goldblum? My opinion of Goldblum is I was first made aware of him. Well, there's two early ones. My number three all-time horror film is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm Mm-hmm. And I love him. Very, you know, cerebral, very acerbic, very, you know, about, you know, calming, yet still quirky. Yeah. Still quirky, which like, but I first became. He's always himself. He always, like, you don't think, you don't get the impression that it's much of a stretch from his own personality. Right. Like, it's always just, I can, today, honey, I think I'll have eggs for breakfast. Like, you just imagine him saying these things. eh? (laughs) Yeah. But. When I first became aware of him, one of my mom, my mother's favorite films of all time is The Big Chill. Yes. So seeing him in that, oh, you know, in a I love vi- him in that in a very different kind of role than what he would. Where he's talk. a writer for People magazine, and he's he. I love the line where he's like, you know, the average article has to be the same thing, same timing as the average human being craps. <laughs> so it's got to be like a three and a half minute article. So yeah, you, yeah. yeah. But again, that's more of a reflecting on back coming of age, you know, that kind of movie. Whereas this is much different. I think this is the one where he broke. Yeah. Like, like everybody knew him from Silverado or Pennsylvania six, 5,000 or, but this is the one where he went from, you know, the Brian Dennehy side role to the guy. The Brian Dennehy side roll. That sounds like a <laughs> dance move at weddings. That, that's my high school band. We're the Brian Dennehy uh, side roll. <laughs> no, he's, he, he's no longer That's the, a 90s punk band, but go yes, ahead. <laughs> yes, yeah. or, or, or would it work Betty as, better as the Danny DeVito side roll? Yeah. But he, this is the one where he became like the guy that, you know, you, you could now mold a movie around him. Like he's not the good looking guy. Although I saw more ASS of him in this film than I really wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Or tidy whities than I really yeah. wanted to. This is the one that brought him to, I would say, America's conscience. You know, this is the one where they go, okay, this is, I mean, he's got three or four films you think of right away. Either this or Jurassic Park, depending upon your age, is the one you yeah. think of first. Absolutely. So, Jackson, your opinion of Mr. Goldblum. Oh, I love Jeff Goldblum and pretty much everything I've seen him in. He's one of those guys that, and and yeah, he definitely does. He's more of a caricature now. Um, I mean, I love him in like Wes Anderson movies. I love him in Grand Budapest Hotel. He's like, and to Mr. Gustav, boy with apple. I love his his performance. <laughs> he's he's just he's great in everything. But in this movie, this is really the one where I agree. This is the one where he became the leading man, which is interesting because. It's not a very flattering role for him. Um, I mean, he starts off kind of like the nerdy uh, scientist. He has one stretch, couple of scenes where he's just, he's muscular and he's good looking, but then he starts getting lots of acne and hairs growing out of his back. So he immediately starts transitioning into a fly man. So it's not a very flattering role physically for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the way he's able to deliver lines, I was reading the script earlier, just to like look at it. And honestly, like, some of this dialogue, if you were just reading it, wouldn't pop that much. Like, I'm reading that scene where they're at the cafe, which is my favorite scene in the movie, I think, other than the ending, maybe. And uh, the, the, the line goes, I will say now, however subjectively, that human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. And you read that, you're like, okay, that's, you know, that's fine. Sounds like something out of the middle of a Stephen King book. 
but the way he delivers it is so perfect. It's like it's like he's just trailing on and on and coming up with the words, not even thinking about what he's saying. It's just so perfect. And nobody else can order cannoli the same way that Jeff Goldblum can. I love the way the <laughs> wa- waiter, waiter. Um, but yeah, he's he's so fantastic in this movie. And uh, I, I but I will say that we'll talk about Gina Davis in a second. Only two people can deliver cheeseburger with as much bravado as they do in this movie. And that is Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum. I don't know if any other actor. I don't I don't even think that Al Pacino could deliver cheeseburger as well as those two can. Well, it may be a close race there, but I I, 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 I I'm going to agree with you. He's quirky. He made it work. I'm always a fan of actors who don't fit into the mold. You know, one of the podcasts, one of the few kind of corporate podcasts I listen to is Gilbert Gottfried's. And, you know, they always talk about how much they love character actors. It is kind of a lost thing that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you had people who didn't look like Chan and Tatum or whatever, and they could make a career. And Jeff Goldblum was one of those guys. I'm not so sure today that Jeff Goldblum could have a career if he just started this year. Am I wrong? Oh, he could find a background role in SVU or something. But as, (laughs) yeah, but as a lead. He did that, didn't he? But I mean, mean, Nathan, am I wrong? I mean, it just seems like Hollywood has become more and more. Uh, you know, character actors, whether it's like a Jack Warner or somebody like that, they're gone. Well, what I was just doing was running through the database, if you will, through the Brundle machine to see who's out there right now that comes close to being a Goldblum with that younger set that would be doing what you're doing, saying becoming the lead. And you're absolutely right. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons that you weren't getting kind of ingenuity that makes this movie. I mean, this is the probably one of the finest remakes, particularly in the horror genre, that this has ever been done. Um, Again, we're remaking um, the the fly, and people say, well, the thing, although the thing kind of does end up a deal where it is far more adapting the original short story than it is the 50s movie, so that's a little different. From what I understand, there may be a short story behind this, but I mean, for as much as he's adapting that, he's adapting Franz Kafka's, you know, um, metamorphosis story right where the guy wakes up and he's a cockroach so there's more of that in this movie than that but i agree and i think and and that maybe if someone also just even held goldblum back as he was coming into the 90s is not knowing exactly what to do with him you know right uh but he's so good here and he does get to have he gets to be the romantic lead sort of kind of (laughs) for a little bit like yogurt from space balls yeah, yeah, there's that. But I mean, we've just it just seems like, you know, you go back and you look at like the Sidney Lumet movies of the yeah. 60s and 70s and so forth. Even a guy and, like Chris Sarandon, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, does Dog Day Afternoon. And Dog Bright Day Nights. Afternoon, like, These yeah. guys are unlike or yes. even or even a William Findlay that always shows up. In some, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're, Christopher they're Walken, all these now. guys are not. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of, you know, my mom grew up with a country musician named Tom T. Hall. And Tom T. Hall made the statement when I was watching an interview with him. And he said, you know, when I moved to Nashville in the 1950s, it was what's your favorite whiskey and what's your favorite guitar? (laughs) He said 20, you know, 50 years later, it's 
40 years later, whatever, it's who is your trainer and where do you get your hair done? And it's the same thing in Hollywood. Well, I was trying to think of somebody these days that would be kind of like that. What about somebody like Toby Jones? Yeah, maybe, but like, it's just, it, it's just Toby so. Toby Jones though, sort of comes back from, I mean, Toby Jones is not a leading man either. I think no. what, right. what he's talking about a younger guy that could step into this sort of. Oh, like, well, really... look back. I mean, you know, what producer today would cast in a lead role, somebody from the early seventies, like Gene Hackman. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. I think that's a fair point. I don't know that they would. And I mean, that may explain why I don't think we really do get uh, the range of of personality. That's what's lacking in a lot of these films is personality. I, you know, sometimes I look at these plots and plots were ridiculous. I mean, we were just talking Goldblum with his personality could come in and carry a movie that's thoroughly, thoroughly mediocre in every other way. You know, yeah. again, a movie like Hideaway is honestly a, probably a pretty mediocre movie. And I'm, yet, I think, go ahead. Bill. I was just going to say, I'm also thinking of somebody like a Michael Rooker. Yeah, where would he be? I mean, he's already got a cachet, right? And that's why he gets yeah. into sporting roles. Uh, like, you know, I because of your recommendation, uh, Nathan, I watched Love and Monsters, which was great. It was a lot of fun. And he's in that. Why is he in that? He's in that because he was in The Walking Dead. Yeah, exactly right. Or or maybe Guardians of the Galaxy, but The Walking yeah. Dead. Like he's he's doing the Walking Dead thing. And but and, and that's the thing. Rooker is a side character, really. That's what Goldblum is now too. Um, but I I'm all for I I, I want to see I let's get Goldblum and put let's get Goldblum and Rooker and put them in a in a show together. Yeah, that. that would be awesome. Honestly, with, with Toby that. Jones that as the, would be Toby awesome. Jones as the police chief, and they're the two veteran cops on the. <laughs> Goldblum had a great show a few years back. Uh, yeah, probably about ten years now. Uh, called Reigns, where he he was a, a detective, a kind of forensic detective, and he talked to dead people, but he didn't talk to them in a in a supernatural sense. He got a sense of them, and it was like he was speaking to them, but he was doing this from the pieces of evidence he was pulling. And it was a great show. Oh, I've never seen that. I've checked that out. Yeah, it didn't last very long. Of course it didn't. But it yeah, was, yeah, it was exactly the kind of thing I saw and got hooked on, and then they canceled it. So when we're looking at it, you know, as, as um, Bill, you said, this is a very small cast. Um, we've talked about Jeff Goldblum, but we've got Gina Davis, and we've got John Getz. And that's basically it, as far as, like... like any, like, like, like the, the number four person is Joy Bouchelle, who played the girl he brought back from the bar. Right. Like, that's the number four person. Yeah. Right. So, Jackson, let me go to you here, the supporting cast. Um, start with Gina Davis. When did you first become aware of Gina Davis, Jackson? Uh, I would say uh, probably Beetlejuice. Um Okay. Yeah, probably Beetlejuice, the more I think about it. I can't think of anything. I certainly wasn't watching Thelma and Louise growing up. But uh, anyways, yeah, probably Beetlejuice. And um, interestingly, I was reading, I don't think this is true. You know how IMDb trivia is, but I was looking yeah. for the IMDb trivia. Um, and it says that Tim Burton was at one point attached to this for a while. I don't know how true yeah. that is, but 
I saw that would have been interesting. I'm glad that didn't happen. Um, yeah. I, I was excited initially when I read that. I was like, that could have been interesting. And I know he would have gotten a good performance out of Gina Davis. But um, uh, I, I much prefer the cold clinical, like Cronenberg style for this film rather than like the spooky far out style brought, Burton would have brought. This would have been a lot wackier and a lot closer to that 50s tone. I feel like if Burton had done it. But um, yeah, Gina Davis... Um, I think she's fantastic in this in this film. I think she's up to the same level as uh, Seth Brundle, and in fact, she's she herself is on screen more than than Seth is. I feel she is kind of the thing grounding us and bringing us back to um, to reality as Seth spirals. And um, she has the classic line, right? Be, be afraid. very afraid. Yeah. Yes. Um, which she delivers with which, with such conviction. Um, and I was watching the trailer, actually, and that trailer is awful. It spoils so much. Um, th- that line is in it, even. He's, try- he's trying to drag that girl into I the, have a, into I the have teleporter. A, if you want to go look on Twitter, Ryan Turk and I had a back and forth about spoilers on trailers. Oh, yes. We argued, yes. like, for a day. There are, like, 20 different tweets between ryan turk and i about spoilers he's like well they've been going back this far and i was like yeah that still sucks dude that doesn't mean mm-hmm. they're right and so yeah, yeah. go ahead you just have Dex. to watch I'm the trailer sorry. for t2 yeah. you watch yeah. like the t2 trailer you're like come on i mean that that would have been so awesome if nobody knew going in that Thanks. arnie was the good guy but uh yeah anyways the trailer sucks for, for the fly but yeah she she's awesome i think she's up to the same level as goldblum in this film um and John Getz, as he said, as uh, Stathis, who starts out really, really scummy. As he said, he starts out kind of like a D-bag. Uh, and but I by think the way, I, I don't know him. I've never met him, but I've met people who worked with him. Again, mm-hmm. he always plays a scumbag, and people say he's the nicest guy in the world. Well, that's generally how it goes, right? I mean, yeah. the guy who plays the heavy is often uh, really nice in real life, and you can't say that about the lead sometimes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that Stathis, though— I started off thinking, you know, I'm like, this guy's like a Lord Farquaad Prince Humperdinck type. You know, you're like, oh, I hate this guy. But like, as it goes on, he becomes a little bit more of a 3D character. I think he had he becomes yeah. a little bit more sympathetic, and of course, he has that that hero moment at the end where he pretty much saves Gina Davis. But um, and he's yeah, great definitely... in Blood Simple, by the way, the Coen Brothers movie. Blood he is great. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm glad he's not like a comical 2D villain type character. I mean, that, he kind of he, he. I mean, I I don't want Gina Davis to be with him in the end. I want her to not be to just leave the whole situation. But still, he helps out and he's um he he develops. But yeah, as you said, the, the cast is really small. The, the fourth build, as as Bill said, is the girl he picks up from the bar, who probably has six, seven lines, one of which is a nice alcohol rub. That's one of her glorious lines right. on screen. Yeah. So not not a very cushy part. But uh, yeah, the, the backside gets really more screen need... time, really. Yeah, <laughs> yes. You only need those three roles. Yeah. They. They really do carry the. Um, they really do carry the film, um, and and yeah, this is it is very much like a play. It is very much like, uh, and yes. I know it was adapted into an opera, right? Which I would be very yep. interested in seeing, yeah. because you can. I mean, <laughs> have you not heard of this? Yeah, I've done, I I know a little bit about it. Yeah. I have heard. Yeah, uh, I was thinking it was a just like a musical, but yeah, I get, you're right now that you mentioned it was an opera. 
Which would be awesome. I, I need to see. I hope it's in another. I hope it's in like Italian or something. <laughs> that would be even better. <laughs> like you see, you see Brundle, Brundle fly crawling along on the on the ceiling, just just well, baritone see. shouting. Yeah. See a large <laughs> lady dressed as the pod itself singing. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. The pod is singing. Um, and I want to see, I want to hear a, a, a big bombastic musical number about how his teeth are relics of the past. But um, yeah, absolutely. I love everybody in this film, all the supporting characters. I love when he goes to the bar. Marky, I think is his name, who George Chavallo plays. Um, I love that little arm wrestling scene. And that's probably the most AD scene in the movie, right? That's, I was, that that, that, over that or over the top are the two best arm yeah. wrestling scenes. Yeah. Oh. Over the top. Oh, over the top. 90 oh, minute arm wrestling scene. Yeah. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I saw yeah, that over, in the theater. Uh, over the top. I, I often hear people say, like, over the top Roadhouse. I'm like, Roadhouse is nowhere near as 80s as over the top. Over the top is just about as 80s wacky as you get. Oh, but, I don't know about that. Over the eight, Roadhouse is pretty 80s. Uh, so, sure. and, yeah, anyway. So. That's about as as eighties as it gets with that bar scene. I actually was thinking of like um, uh, any which way but loose or whatever, like or, that that kind or, of or the uh, one in Revenge of the Nerds, the Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. Armors. And we, I, I have officially posted. I sent Wes a message. The Real Talk guys slagged any which way but loose, mm. and I said, "How double dare you, sir?" It I made mean, love <laughs> Roadhouse, but. Any which way but loose is not worth their time. And they haven't even seen it, and they said it was, no. Tommy and the guys are like, are you kidding me? One of the top ten movies from 1980 was Clint Eastwood with an ape. I'm like, how dare you? How dare you? Absolutely. Slide left turn. Yes, and Wes was like, okay, to be fair, I haven't seen it. I said, then you shut your mouth, sir. You shut <laughs> your mouth. That is a great we'll have movie. to have them on to defend themselves. Yes, Dave Becker agrees with me on that. It's a great movie. So anyway, all right. So all right. equal not as much, but. I, I actually, Any Which Way But Loose, I liked better than every, uh, what was it? Any Which Way You Can, I loved better than yeah. Every Which Way But Loose. Which is the, which is the one that had Jeffrey Lewis? Was he in? He was in both. Was you make both? a good point. I'm not sure I can remember which is which now. I need to rewatch yeah. them too. But I and, I like them both. But yeah, the sequel was better, and that's the one where uh, the sequel is the one where I I watched it on like an ABC movie of the week with my parents. They all like the edited version, and the scene where the biker gang is ticketed. My father and I literally like rolled off the couch oh, laughing. You know, okay, so I actually I think I'm I think I'm I think I thought that was the first movie. No, the, the, the second, second one okay. where they get the tickets and yes. they've had all their hair pulled off and yes. they're the wigs. Yes. And That's the, the one I'm thinking like, of is the yeah. cops are like, We you know, we enforce lots of laws, but the laws of nature we don't, you know, we don't enforce and they're laughing. I was just like my parents were like we were all dying laughing. So I'm sorry. Any which way we lose is a great movie. So anyway, any which way you can is great. Speaking so, about primates and co-starring with primates, can you talk about the baboon? <laughs> oh, you're it's too tough to talk about the other human actors first. Oh yes, 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 yes. But um, I just listened to your episode today about Shockma. Um, Shockma! <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> the same baboon is in the fly. Yes. Oh really? Yes. yes. That's 
that's Typhoon. And Cronenberg said that they realized once they got him, okay, this is more of a wild animal than they thought. Yes. They said it was very dangerous and creepy a lot of the time on the set. Yes. Which you can tell by the fact that they just let him loose in Shockman. He's like, he is riding everything that's not nailed down. <laughs> but a, they said that he was actually guy. good at Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, you can almost see that. Jeff Goldblum seems, strikes me as a baboon whisperer. Like, yeah. that he just calm him down. Hey, hey there, well, little guy. Well, the fact just, that know, he's six foot four and, and he'd been working out and was muscular, Cronenberg said maybe that's the reason why it respected him. But he said that <laughs> he would, Cronenberg said he was terrified of that baboon, but <laughs> that he showed nothing but respect to Jeff Goldblum. Cool. And he's sitting there just chilling when Goldblum in the film, like Goldblum sitting there with him, holding him and everything, and he's just like, chill. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But that's that's funny. So Gina Davis. Gina what do Davis. we think of Gina Davis, folks? I, I, I was gonna say I, I was I was familiar with Gina Davis. <laughs> Sorry. Is that is that is that your uh, pre- primate call? It was something. I'm sorry. I put it away. Go ahead. That that must be foreplay. Um, Come to my telepod. (laughs) My first recognition, and I was going over her bio, and I'm like, oh, yeah. The first time I ever saw her was in an episode of Family Ties. Really? And she tried. Even more tootsie. Yeah, because she came, she had an episode where Mr. Keaton, Michael Gross, uh, Tremors fame, uh, would become, was looking out for new, uh, or she, they wanted housekeepers. They wanted wow. nannies. And she came in and, and Michael J. Fox had the biggest crush on her, but she was an absolutely useless twit. She wasn't very good, but she was cute. And he kept trying to get her to get the job and she was just awful. And my other, one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite comedies of the 80s was Fletch. Yes. And <laughs> she played the reporter in Fletch. Yes. That's right. So that was pre, that was about a year or two before The Fly. So I was like, all right, Gina Davis, this is great. And you know what? She is really strong in this. She I mean, is. She's, she gives a fantastic she gives a great, And I'm, I know that she gets the Oscar later and she gets another nomination later. But she really shows her chops. Like people might think of her from Transylvania Six Five Thousand and Earth Girls Are Easy and Beetlejuice. I think and... I'm the only one that thinks of her from that one. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I do too. I do too, Nathan. Transylvania Six Five Thousand. Yeah. So, so you think of her in kind of you know maybe form-fitting outfits, or you think of her as this kind of this flighty, or you know she's there as the I can't. Oh no, I think in this movie she shows that she can take it to that. And in teacher speak, she brought it to the next level. Yeah. She's a level four actress in this film. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. And 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 people forget. I mean, she's multi talented. I mean, she's like a, a one of the top like ten or whatever um, rated archers in the world. I mean, I mean, she's uh, she's an athlete. She's she's incredible. I didn't um, know she was that good. I had no idea. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jackson, when did you become aware of Gina Davis? Was well, it Beetlejuice, it was, what you said? Or? Yeah, Beetlejuice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was just looking at her filmography. I, I love Fletch as well. Yeah. Um, I recall she did, her role was a little bit smaller in Fletch than oh, yeah, much we were talking about today. But, um, yeah. yeah, she was in Fletch in 85, she was in this in 86, and then Beetlejuice in 88. And let's not talk about the fact that Earth Girls Are Easy came out the same year. But, uh, <laughs> you, can't but forget, really, you, you can't forget Quick Change. Oh, oh, Quick Change quick was good. Change. Movie. So good. 
Yeah, oh, good. Good Change is a good, good movie. movie. Yeah, I've Randy totally played, seen that Bill movie. Murray. Yeah. yeah, Jason Robards. Yeah, I've totally, I've totally seen that movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never heard of it until now. I'm looking at it right now. 1990. Oh, it's very wow. good. Bad luck to see a thing like that. I think I saw that in the theater. I do like one. Tony Shalhoub, and I see that he's on the cast. So I'll it's check a that somewhat out. He, restrained Randy Quaid, if you can believe it. I cannot. Yeah, that was before he lost his mind. Yeah, <laughs> he's got a great. He... They get Sorry, they get ahead. lost at one point in the in the in the middle of the street somewhere, and these two guys come out and have a jousting match on tricycles or something, <laughs> and I'm just and then, and one of them like kills the other, and then this family runs out grabs his body and just runs away and randy quaid <laughs> just stares and says it's bad luck just seeing a thing like that and they drive <laughs> off. well it's good to know there was a time when he was a little bit hinged before he did christmas vacation to cousin I mean, eddie he's still Dick playing the wild card even in quick change it's just less of a yeah. wild card. well but it's this is a guy who you know went to canada and gave a press conference to announce that he was hiding in Canada. <laughs> what? Hiding in plain sight. You got him now, Bill. <laughs> yeah, he's probably yeah, he's down probably in... living down the street from you, Bill. So he's down he's with the dwellers. He's going to be watching your house when you go camping. <laughs> he's, there he's, you go. He's, There's your he, house sitter, Bill. <laughs> he's down with the dwellers of Chud. He's down below yeah. the surface. Home. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about David Cronenberg. I don't get uh, to talk about Gina Davis. Oh, I oh okay. Go ahead, Nathan. I'm sorry. Gina Davis. I just want to talk about Cutthroat Island. Um, oh, no, no. I, okay, go ahead and just skip over that. <laughs> just teasing. Um, no, she, she's a great actress. And in this movie, though, particularly that interesting, that line, the, you know, be afraid, be very afraid. It's kind of interesting where it happens, right? Because at this point, She's not entire. She knows he's gone into the machine. She doesn't know entirely what's wrong with him. She doesn't know where he's turning into a monster yet at this point. And the delivery of the line and, and when it happens as he's with this girl. Now, obviously, contextually, there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. But the way she delivers that line and then the, and the sequences later with the that happened with the abortion clinic and stuff like that, there's a very there's some very nuanced acting going on there that you see her do in later movies. But I, I both of them, Goldblum and and Davis, and again, they three movies together. This is the only one where you really get this sense of, hey, I would have, I could easily watch another couple movies if you got the right director pairing them together the way they they go back and forth. And they mention, you know, cancer gets name dropped in this movie, obviously. Yeah. So does the abortion element. The one thing that never gets spoken out loud, which kind of is emphasized, I feel like, in that "Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid" scene, is AIDS. In 1986, the 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 shadow of AIDS would have been hanging all over this movie. Oh yeah, and, and yet Cronenberg uh, denies that. I mean, he may deny it. I mean, lots of filmmakers say, "I didn't put this in there. I didn't put that in there." It's there. I mean, you can't, you know. And yeah. and and while this one night stand isn't necessarily, it's not that there's sexually transmitted disease at work in this film. You do have, you know, that that's what makes this movie so realistic and so grounded. You're watching a loved one deteriorate and become something else. And they are watching it happen to themselves and Brundle's deterioration. Uh, you know, I've seen, I haven't seen people die of AIDS, but I have seen people die of cancer, uh, external skin cancer. And it's not pleasant to watch, you know, it's, no. they, and, and 
the the notes that it hits are so realistic that you need people who aren't just going to be in a schlocky horror movie. You know, you don't need a scream queen. You need Gina Davis. Yeah, absolutely. You need a uh, an actor of her caliber. Yeah, and I have seen people die of AIDS, and yeah, it, it, it's the same. It's it's to watch them literally physically deteriorate. You know, week after week is 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 uh, it's just shocking, but. Uh, anyway, yeah, and one of the things that I don't hear people talk enough about, maybe I'm the only person who loves her in this movie, I know people love her in Thelma and Louise, I know people love her when, uh, what was the movie she did with William Hurt, the tourist movie, I can't remember. Uh, Accidental Tourist. Accidental Accidental Tourist, yeah, that was a great great movie. movie. Yeah, great movie. Um, The Long Kiss, Yes, I love that movie. That is such a, that's a fun one. That's really fun. That's much better than Cutthroat Island, but same director, Rennie Harlan. Yeah, her husband at the time, right? But, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Long Kiss Goodnight, I think, is a great movie. It's a lot of fun. Samuel L. Jackson. Lots and, and, and those two play off of each other. They, like, Jackson does so many of these kind of buddy roles with actors, but that's one of my favorite pairings of him and her when in the car. And we're trying to get out of New Jersey. Well, that's not going to work because who's trying to get out of New Jersey? Everyone who still lives here. <laughs> exactly. But it's funny going over her I, her curriculum vitae. You know, she hasn't done anything in a while that's noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, she was the Exorcist. Yeah, the Exorcist. But I mean, how long did that? Ten episodes. Like she hasn't. I don't know. She, she's been the voice of in She-Ra, or she was yeah, in Gra- I, I Grey's Anatomy. You know, like she's, she has- I think she's been a victim of one of those things where, you know, it's. I've heard Helen Mirren and Meryl Streep talk about this. It's, you know, if you're an actor, uh, if you're a male, you can work forever. If you're a female, you only have a choice of a couple of roles, and I think that's the problem and i think that's a shame because yeah she's a very talented performer so i yeah but i I just think that prejudice is still there as progressive as hollywood pretends to be that that prejudice is still there unless you want to do a certain kind of actress too yeah yeah Yeah, unless you want to be the grandma role if you want to do the charlotte ray kind of stuff then you can keep acting right but she doesn't obviously want to do that kind of thing right so let's talk about Mr. David Cronenberg. Um, I love him as a director. I love him as an actor. He's great in Nightbreed as the serial killer. Um, and, you know, he's he, he does, I think, a stellar job here. I love him. Even in Jason X, where he has that weird line where I want him moist, <laughs> which I don't yes. know what that means. <laughs> I don't know what you, that means. You get the feeling he just sort of pulled that one out of the the Cronin void and went with it. I don't know what that means. Uh, Please never refer to the Cronin void again. I don't think I can take any more of that. You know what, you know what, you know what exists. You've seen Videodrome. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, Oh, all right. Let's go to our Canadian here. Bill, do I really have to ask what you think of Mr. Cronenberg? I love Cronenberg, but not because he's Canadian. Well, I mean, I mean, it helps. But what I love about him is he's true to his art. Like, he doesn't compromise. His vision is his vision. Like it, lump it, or whatever. He's going to give you his part of a movie. His, his interpretation of be it rabid, be it dead zone, be it the brood, be it the fly, be it Crash. naked lunch. 
be it crash. Yeah. You know, like you're not going to get somebody who's out of art school trying to get into Hollywood and they're not going to tell it that way. So many people do it either safe or they go too far the other way. He just tells it the way his mind is. So him, I would love it. I was saying to Nathan a while back, a David Lynch, David Cronenberg a combination for a film. My <laughs> gosh. Can I don't you imagine? Think anyone but them would understand it. I'm out. And, but I'm how out. wild if yeah. it was another Disney PG movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but Cronenberg was very much of the George Romero ilk in yeah. that whatever he does had some sort of social voice in it. Yep. Like sure. it wasn't in your face like Romero's. It was, you had to read between the lines. You had to see the context of the film. Well, Romero was much more political where Cronenberg was always much more personal. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, Rabid was STDs. The Brood was about his divorce. You know, um, he has said the fly, you know, Nathan, you're right. You can't, can't help but reading AIDS in that. But he was always like, no, I was, it was more about cancer. The other thing I've heard about the fly uh, on a social level is it's a commentary on aging. Yeah, because when the fly first discovers that he's losing his hair, he's losing his teeth, his skin is pot-marked. It's almost like he's cancerous. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, a, a, a somebody's thought process on how aging is being shown in media. Yeah, yeah. When you first see him in the closest to the fly mold, he's not on the ceiling. He's at the canes. He comes yeah. walking out from behind the yeah with the canes, and hunched hand. over, and yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting, but so Jackson as the aspiring director here. What do you think of Cronenberg? I know how much you like his son's work. We've talked mm-hmm. about that a, a lot, but what do you think about his work? I love David Cronenberg. Yeah, like I said, I've only seen three of the three of his movies, but I've probably seen three, maybe other than Scanners. I should see Scanners. You got to see um, Rabbit. I want you to see Rabbit. Oh, yeah, which are the three you've them. seen again, Jackson? The you've Brood. This one, Videodrome. Uh, and the brood. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, you know, I haven't, I'm not too familiar with his, uh, filmography. Past. You have to see history it's, of violence. That's brilliant. And dead. History of violence. Dead yeah. And, and history shivers. Of violence. Scanners. Yeah. So his filmography basically. Yeah, I just pretty need to much. Yeah, pretty much Honestly, he's not, he hasn't made a movie that's not worth seeing. He's made some weird ones, but, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying they're all great, but even, even some of the lesser known ones like, uh, was it M. Butterfly and Existence? They're still worth seeing, you know. Cosmopolis. Mm-hmm. I, I worth agree. Seeing. But how, Nathan, because you're the film critic here, how brilliant is History of Violence? It's, it's great. I mean, yeah. William William Hurt got an, an Oscar nomination off of five minutes of screen exactly. time. And well, <laughs> Hurt is a fantastic actor. It's the way Cronenberg used him. I mean, Look at look at the difference between Hurt in Altered States and Goldblum here, who, you know, uh, Hurt always has a measured manner, mannerism to him, and he's anything but that in History uh, of Violence. There he's is a scene, degrees uh, there is a scene in History of Violence where William Hurt just goes, well, you could die, and starts <laughs> to just, like, turn his chair, and it is chilling. It's awesome. It, it is it, the movie is based off of a graphic novel, and he is like the great graphic novel villain. And I, I kid you not, he's in the movie for so little yep. amount of time. He has one single scene. Ed Harris, I mean, uh, like, I'm going to go, I want to go watch that movie. And, and Eastern Promises is not a bad movie either, but it yeah. came in the wake of History of Violence, which was phenomenal. Yeah. 
Yeah, Jackson, you just need to see all of them, buddy. I guess that's <laughs> my fast next project. Company, fast Company, you can skip whatever that like race yeah. car movie was. Oh, that was, a, that was an interesting one. I watched that one. That was coming. That was a fun yeah. one. Yeah, it's a, it's a '70s racing film. That's yeah, yeah. I mean, it is what he it can, is. It's he not can save. Awful. He can save that to the yeah. end. Don't you agree, Bill? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's not. You know, I would see eight of them before that one. But yeah, you know, I was gonna say. Do you not I'm also sure. see Cronenberg with a little bit of William Castle in him? He yes. because he's looking for the reaction. He's looking for that human guttural reaction. Be it through sex, be it through uh, violence, be it through odd occurrences, be it through societal change. He's looking for the yeah. visceral human reaction. I wrote a note about that. I'll save it for okay. uh, when my turn comes around. But you were saying something, Jackson, or you started to say something? I was just going to ask if I if I really needed to see his two episodes of Peep Show and his episode of Friday the 13th, the series. Do you think that's essential to my viewing, or can I skip those? <laughs> what is Peep Show? <laughs> No idea, but he directed two episodes in '76. I would just. Oh, I, would, I really hope I it's would. those little candied birds walking around <laughs> doing crazy things. That would be amazing. Marshmallow. I, I would stick to his filmography and yeah. go from there. But yeah, I, I would, the 13th the series is fun though. I mean, I don't know. I know he directed an episode, but that's better than you would think it would be. It's better than Freddy's Another series shot in Toronto. Yeah, of course it is. Those are <laughs> not exactly a stamp of quality, no. but uh, interesting facts. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All righty. So we're running along here, folks. So let's skip ahead to this favorite scene. Is there a favorite scene in The Fly? So, Nathan, let me start with you. Do you have a favorite scene? I don't know if it's favorite scene, but it's the memorable scene. It's it, kind of twofold. One is when he just involuntarily vomits on that donut in front of her. Oh, yes, fall. yes, yes. It's so disgusting. But there's there's your gold bloom shining through right there, where he makes it seem so like realistic. Like this is like I'm so sorry. Like like someone wearing depends or something. He's just like yes. like oh it happened. He, he forgot that that's how he eats because nobody's been around him for a bit. And so he's like. Wait, I just vomited on the donut for oh. the girl I love. That's not such a big deal because my ear fell off. Uh, and the, and directly preceding that, so it all kind of forms the same scene as when he's that that little medicine cabinet of nightmares where I'm trying to decide what pieces of you am I looking at, but let me not think too hard. You know, when he, oh, what's he called? Yeah. The Seth Brundle Natural History Museum? Yeah. And <laughs> it's so, those scenes when he is coming to terms with what's happened to him oh, are the best scenes of the movie. And the one, it, what Bill just said about the shock, the one thing I mentioned, want to say about Cronenberg, uh, just very quick, is he, you know, the Universal Horror movies shocked and frightened people when they saw them in the 30s. And even as a kid, I remember reading books about that and wondering, like, what would that be like? Because, you know, these aren't really, you know, they're cool. I love them, but they're not scaring me. They're not shocking me. And... Cronenberg recognizes that to get that same effect as the universal horror movies, you have to do a little bit more, but you have to do it in the right way. And I think this is this is what he has to do in 1986 to get the same shock people had the first time they saw Frankenstein's monster walk out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, Bill, favorite scene? I have two favorites. And I wanted to put one line in here. I wrote one line that still makes me laugh. There's it. at one point Gina Davis comes and visits him in the, in the, his uh, apartment. She goes, "You look bad. You smell bad." 
and Goldblum goes, I've never been much of a bather. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Such a weird aside. Like that yeah, explains everything. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so there's yeah. two scenes that uh, always raise an eyebrow for me. The one as a man is the one where Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum have been making love. It seems like forever. And she yeah. taps out. I'm done. He goes, oh, I want to still keep going. <laughs> yeah. Just like, yeah, cheer my yeah. But I mean, the uh, ending, the ending scene when the uh, fly's face crushes in, uh, I, I when he's changing at the end, I love that because he's obviously about ninety five percent fly, but he's got that five percent of him that still wants to continue it and drags himself back into the the uh, porter place. The uh, what do you want to call it? The transmigration pod. Yeah, telepods. Oh, yeah, telepods. You know, like, I've seen a little bit of behind the scenes. Apparently, the scene where Gina Davis pulls the uh, lower jaw off. And to the end of the movie, there's maybe five minutes. It took them two weeks to fill those five minutes of film. Because it's an animatronic fly, and then it's practical effects on the face. And Gina Davis had to get over all this stuff gushing out. And at a certain point, you have to really pull on that jaw to come off. Like it doesn't just, you know, snap and it comes off. So she had to ram on the thing. And so it took him forever to do it. So <laughs> the practical effects I thought were phenomenal. Oh, and absolutely. And we need to give a shout out to Chris Wallace, I guess was his name. He, yeah. who also worked on enemy mine and gremlins. He won an Oscar for this incredible work. Absolutely incredible. Sequel too. Yeah. He, he oh, designed, he, apparently he designed the gremlins. This guy. Oh, he directed the sequel? Oh, okay. Yeah. Bless his heart. Uh, <laughs> I saw that one in theaters, too. Well, the story behind uh, that is, is uh, Cronenberg had a screenplay for that, but when it was presented to Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks was like, yeah, but it's not a direct sequel. He just wanted one that linearly made sense. So he shot was, the second one. Yeah, it was a totally different uh, idea. The idea was, it was more like the lawnmower man. Like, Seth Brundle's mind had gone into the telepods, and Finds its way into that company, right. the Bartok company, and then it like it does all kinds of terrible things, and then eventually find a way to restore his body. So happy endings for everyone. Oh yeah, exactly. No so Jackson, flies in sight. Yeah, Jackson, what about you? Uh, well, I have two favorite scenes. One I touched on um, earlier, which is the cafe scene. I love the line from Gina Davis. Where it's like, "You usually take coffee with your sugar," and uh, and Jeff Goldblum just reacts like, "What?" Oh, and he goes back to talking about what he was talking about. I love that. I also love the the scene after the bar the bar uh, arm wrestling scene, where uh, the the lady's like, uh, "Are you a bodybuilder?" And he's like, "Bodybuilder? Yeah, I build bo- I I what did he say? I built I take bodies apart and I put them back together again, or something like that." Mm-hmm. Um, so I love those two lines. I love his little interactions with people. Um, but the ending scene is really the knockout. Like that's just perfect body horror you want to talk body horror you talk that scene or perhaps you talk the fingernail scene that's the only Whoa. effect that really oh, made me look yeah. away um i don't know what when we want to talk just really dive into the to the the special effects there but that was the only one that really made me wince because like eyeball horror and finger horror those are the two things that make me look away but from the screen that, anything else shooting I can take. juice out like it's a boiled hot dog yeah like, it because yeah and we see in the arm wrestling scene like that 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 sweat i guess is all white it's like yeah. milky and then yeah. when he when his fingernail comes off it squirts that milky stuff onto oh. the i was like oh come well, when on when she visits him his whole shirt is 
pasted to his body with that white milky junk. Yeah. I'm like, oh. Which was a mix of honey, milk, and eggs. Wow. I can imagine so how that yeah. smelled. It would have smelled yeah. on you, Goldblum, for wearing yeah. that. Oh, it, it, yeah, I read it smelled terribly. So, But mine is, I, I, I think it's heartbreaking, the scene where he's in the bathroom and he just looks at the mirror and he says, what's going on? Am I dying? Yeah, yep. And yep. it's just, it's absolutely heartbreaking. But at that point, he still thinks, you know, it might still just be a genetic, like it might be cancer. Like he doesn't right. know. He's just going through his mind of trying to figure it out. So you're trying to, you know what it is, but you're trying to sympathize, I guess, empathize with him as a character. Well, I think you do. I think you empathize with him. And this is, maybe this is a final question for all of us before we just talk about anything else we missed. But I mean, don't you empathize with him all the way through, Nathan? Yeah. You start. I mean, I, I do. A- absolutely. I think the thing is, the stuff that he goes through, you would empathize with anyone. But I think they do an excellent job of making... I think he's a likable guy. I think he's yeah. a guy, particularly for this scientist who's been shut in. He, he hasn't really like lived his life that much with people. And he finally says, he even says, just as I, just as I got this thing, you know... Yeah. It's you know it's it's kind of taken away from him just as he he's found this you know when it's really heartbreaking when he says I'm just you know I'm a fly that dreamed for a while that he was a man and it was a really good dream. Uh, well, and when he says to Gina Davis, well, well, but we'll all be you know most human together. You know, it's just almost like he's just desperate. And what was right. I? You don't even. He's what, not being evil. He's desperate. And you know what I mean? Is Bill? Am I wrong? Well, I was going to say, was I the only one that winced when she takes her, her scissors and cuts the hairs off his back? Oh, no, no, <laughs> and, that is wincing. Yeah, no, I winced. And you're yeah. like, like, I'm not wincing because yeah. I'm scared, but you would, if it's one of those sensitive hairs, you, oh, yeah. oh, boy, yeah. oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Jackson, well, he just on rolls you. on a microchip in the beginning. I was like, Bleh. oh, yeah, oh. Which is oh, yeah, bad, definitely... is, which is creepy foreshadowing that you're going to get fused with the pod later on. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, he's become one with the machine earlier. Yeah. And and that's another thing that, that kind of harkens back to Videodrome. You think about like the end when Brundlefly is fused with the pod and you see the 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 um, pipe sticking out of him and stuff. That, that kind of uh, harkens back to Videodrome with the gun, with the pipes and the gun attached yeah. to his hand. Mm-hmm. He, he loves that imagery. Um, so yeah, I didn't even catch that. That's that's a good that's a good catch, Nathan. And um, yeah, absolutely. That that scene where she cuts the hairs off his back was was really disturbing. I was thinking of like Spider Man, like Sam Raimi Spider Man, where you, you see his little little hair tendrils come out of his fingers. Yeah, it's a very very disturbing yeah. image. And uh, and just just the fact that when I first saw it, um, first time watching it, I thought maybe I was like, did he get them stitched up? And I was like, oh no. Oh, those are little, those are little fly feet. Those are little fly tendrils. Uh, and as the movie goes on, you can just see him grow more and more out of his face, like under his eye and stuff. It's just disturbing. Yeah, absolutely. So, folks, what else do we want to talk about before we wrap this up and rate and recommend it? Nathan, yeah. anything else? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, the problem is that if I started talking about anything else, it could go on forever. I, I love this movie so much. I, I think, I, um, I it's, it's the bet. It's one of the best science fiction horror movies out there. It's one of the best horror movies of the 1980s. I agree with Jackson on that. And it's, uh, it works on so many different levels and it does all of that in 90 some minutes. 
Yeah. So, Bill, what about you? The last thing I would want to mention, and I'm surprised that my good friend here, Jackson, hasn't, being a music guy, is the score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what did you think of the score of the film, Which Mr. Howard Lawrence? Shore helped contribute. Howard to. Shore, yeah. And I wondered yeah. if you had any interactions with him. Uh, in your I, I did not, no. I nope. never had any interactions with Howard Shore, no. Jackson, what do you think? I love the score from this movie. And, and Howard Shore is one of my favorite uh, composers. I love his collaborations with Peter Jackson, like the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, the King Kong soundtrack, especially the King Kong soundtrack. Silence I mean, that, that's... Lambs? Signs of the Lambs as well, but but like you know that that song when um, uh, King Kong's on the ice in in New York that like is that James Newton Howard? Is that James Newton Howard? Oh, you're right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh. But Howard Shore definitely did like concerning but, Hobbits. You know, like the Shire yes, music. You you can hear Lord of the Rings the 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 beginning vestiges of that in this score. Like I love the kind of gothic over overcooked mm-hmm. score that he does for this movie. And I think it was a great idea to go with orchestral for this one because it does feel more yeah. timeless. I love like the synth scores of like John Carpenter movies. Yes, I'm so glad this doesn't have a synth score though. It doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. And yeah. but I mean, like that you can tell that 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 would have been the go-to if they didn't get yeah. Howard Shore. Like it, it would have been cheaper to just do it in the synth, and it would have been because it's a sci-fi kind of movie. But it definitely helps. Like in that scene where uh, she's trying to tell Seth that she's pregnant. Uh, with his child and she just can't bring herself to it and he says get out of here or i'll hurt you you know like he's afraid of what he might do and the score swells and you're like oh man this is so emotional i can't imagine what it would be like if it was like ding dong ding dong ding dong ding dong like a little like and and of course am i wrong bill isn't howard shore a canadian Oh, I can give you a whole biography oh yeah howard shore born in toronto there you go. When, when, underneath when he, a maple when, leaf. When, yeah. when he when he was thirteen, <laughs> he became friends with a younger Lauren Michaels. Well, and of course, as I was what I was going to ask is, am I the only one who remembers that Howard Shore was the leader of the Howard Shore's All Nurse Band on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, he was the musical director for five. He was one of the guys dressed up as the King Bee. Yeah, in those uh, Saturday Night Lives, but also, he became uh, friends. Insect Human Hybrid, I guess. <laughs> I guess it's a human hybrid. He also was a musician, part of a band called Lighthouse, which had quite a few hits in Canada, including the song One Fine Morning. That's a shout out to Dave Waugh. I know you're listening. But he, al- he also wrote the music Isn't for- Lighthouse sing Brandy? Uh, br- uh, no. That's Brandy, You're a Fine Wine? No, that's not Lighthouse. Um, he wrote the music for Doug, Doug Henning's musical Spellbound. <laughs> so who knew Doug Henning had a musical? I don't know. I had no idea he had a musical. I do now. I didn't yeah, ask I to, but now I but, know. But he also wrote the opera, The Fly, when it was uh, mm. gone off to do that. And they had two different incarnations of it. So it was obviously, it was, I think they said it was Placido Domingo was involved in that. Like it was quite the production. So I guess it was. Is that a recommendation? I, I, I don't know. I think it was only out for t- two performances in 1990. Uh, I wish he had done the score for the Fly uh, <laughs> Opera. Looking glass did Brandy. My mistake. Sorry, guys. Uh, See, now you got that stupid Brandy. You're a fine wine girl. It's girl, not whatever. Whatever. Uh, that's, that's, anyway. that's, AM, that's AM gold. We're holding them up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Um, ratings and recommendations. 
on a scale one to ten, should people avoid rent by Bill, you go first since you're I, the Canadian I this, here. I give this a nine out of ten. It's mm-hmm. darn near perfect. My my one complaint, which I have already expressed to uh, Nathan, is I would have loved to have seen a little bit more of the graphic fly. Mm. I would love. I like. I don't think it needs a whole hour. It doesn't need to be a Zack Snyder film or anything. But I would have loved about fifteen more minutes uh, showing him in his final form. I thought that would have been a little bit more. That, and that's a little bit selfish, being the body horror guy I am. Well, there were some graphic scenes that were cut based yeah. upon the uh, preview audiences. Yeah, apparently uh, there was a scene involving a, a cat. Yep. Or, or yeah, a, that didn't go over well. A, a monkey yeah. cat or something yeah. but a monkey cat. Yeah. I, I saw that. And maybe had that stuff played out, I'd be a little bit more. But that's the only part. That, and I thought it, as Nathan had mentioned earlier, it kind of, I have notes about it being the parts of it, which seems like it's Hunchback and Notre Dame. Part of it seems like it's part of Frankenstein. Like it's got tropes from the universal horror films from 60 years earlier. Right. Or 50 years earlier, which I think, I, I'm not saying he stole it, but he was obviously a fan and used the e- oh, yeah. Im- imagery and the themes from that. So oh, between yeah. those two things, I think there's a little bit of room, but it's, I was surprised. Like I'd probably seen it a dozen times, but I hadn't seen it in about 10 years. And boy, does it hold up well. It's one yeah. of those ones that does. I agree. Nathan, what about you? Uh, 10 out of 10 for me. Like totally. Oh, there we and go. it was only reinforced, honestly, on this last viewing. Would, would it have been 10 out of 10 if it had been Meryl Streep playing the lead? It's not the Dina Davis. I mean, again, the thing, the thing about Dina Davis, though, she, she, she's a rounded actress. You know what I mean? She has, she has the depth there. Some of Meryl Streep, I think they they could have overdone it, honestly. And I think that they, these characters, these people walk a line. Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, they have their eccentricities. They aren't people that were hired for every single job, but they bring something interesting almost every time out. And then you have. Cronenberg, who also brings something interesting every time out. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a ten out of ten. I just even the homages build the movie for me. So that's uh, that's what I think. I agree, Jackson. What about you? Uh, it's a nine out of ten for me. It was an eight between an eight point uh, five and a nine starting this podcast, but um, you know my appreciation has gone up a little bit discussing it. Um, but my my only my biggest flaw is that we didn't that the the alternate ending was cut where Veronica's baby is born with butterfly wings. That would have been hilarious. And I'm so <laughs> mad at test audiences that we didn't get that. But uh, no, Did that I really happened. Yes, there was an alternate ending that was cut where Veronica's child is born, maybe in a dream, I don't know. But it has butterfly wings and it flies away. Yes, uh, that, that actually... And you, there are screenshots of it you can see online. It looks pretty stupid, but I think it would have been funny. Anyways, uh, actually, I'm glad that didn't happen. But 9 out of 10, I'm I say buy it. didn't happen. Yeah, I say buy it. Um, I want to get the Fly Collection uh, box set, um, which has the three yep. uh, Fly movies from the 50s and 60s and the two from the 80s, although I've heard that all except the 58 and the 86 film are pretty bad. Um, but it'd be interesting to watch them Eric anyways. Stoltz? I haven't seen... You don't like Eric Stoltz? You know, oh, I just movie. saw the two for the first time today, and if mm-hmm. you could take it as a B movie, it actually gives Bill more what he wants, the fly running amok and doing horrible, gross things. 
it's hey, uh it's a is a bit as an 80s b movie it's not awful as the sequel to the fly it's awful mm-hmm. it, it it's awful i saw it in the theater it was awful <laughs> it's terrible um this is it but i'm with nathan here it's a 10 out of 10 um and it is a must own. I do own it. I do own a earlier box set. I don't own the Shout Factory box set, but or the era or whatever that just came out. But for a few years ago, I bought the box set with Fly, Fly Two, and all three of the original movies. Um, so I've got that, and I love it. It's. It, I think it's a must own. I love this movie. Saw it in theaters. Have probably watched it ten times you know, since it came out. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. So folks, we want to thank all of our Patreon supporters and you can become one for as little as two fifty a month by going to Patreon and searching for father and son, watch horror movies. And you can find more from us at father and son, watch And we have a Twitter account and an Instagram account and a closed Facebook page. Nathan, where can the listeners find you, buddy? They can find me and Bill over at the Phantom Galaxy podcast. And that's, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can also find us Phantom Galaxy at podbean.com. We've been doing this. Uh, the Phantom Galaxy podcast has been around for a while, but Bill helped me resurrect it this uh, around this time last year. So we're coming up on a one-year anniversary. And we're putting together a pretty cool show for that. So I encourage everyone to go over, check out the podcast, uh, Check us out, and then uh, Bill. Bill's got a hundred different podcasts he's on and, and around, so I'll let him go from there. <laughs> All right, yes, and absolutely, you should listen to Phantom Galaxy. It is a great podcast. I was listening to it um, today um, when you guys when you guys have the uh, folks from Horror Chronicles. I don't know how you keep that together, but anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> Bill, so where, much fun. They are Bill. Where can they find you, buddy? They can find me uh, bi-weekly on Land of the Creeps with my good friends Greg Morgan and Dave Becker, who have all been on your show, and they're absolutely awesome guys. And you can find me with Nathan on Phantom Galaxy. And although it's, as as uh, Nathan likes to say, the Russian doll of all podcasts, where it's a podcast within a yes. podcast within a podcast within a podcast. <laughs> yes. So you can get everything from baseball references to horror references to music references to yeah. sci-fi outlandishness. It's, it's, you know, it's well put together rush to animated movies to talking about baseball spin rates. Like you got it all on. We'll have a gardening (laughs) podcast before this is all over. (laughs) Next thing you know, it's going to be a food critique and it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Martha Stewart's going to be on the Phantom Galaxy Network. Yeah. But somehow we, you know, we could do a pizza blog. No problem. Pizza podcast. And we'll we'll make them watch the stuff. And And Canadian burgers and yeah. Poutine. Yeah. Well, come to Phantom Galaxy. It's irreverent, yet it's still serious. Nathan comes with the critic a smart hat, and I just come with the smart ass hat. So <laughs> enjoy Phantom Galaxy whenever you can. Oh, man. All right, Jackson, what about you, buddy? Uh, you can find me at, uh, on Twitter at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. You can find my letterbox and YouTube links from there. Yes, again, I will reaffirm. Check out Phantom Galaxy. Listen to our episode when it drops uh, where we discuss Dark Star and Benson, Arizona uh, as, <laughs> in, oh, as, as and, written and, by uh, John Carpenter. And Jackson, do you have uh, that on uh, your MP3 playlist? I do. 
I do. I had Benson, Arizona in my playlist. I have it downloaded. Uh, yes, and I, I do listen to it very often to my to my dad's dismay. I know he's very disappointed in me, but it's a good song. Dang it. I will defend it to the death. As you're lifting the weights, that song is going on your head, right? I'm not joking. I have done that before. Yes. That's, that's for real. I've listened to Flight of the Concords and Benson, Arizona before while, while lifting like the weights. That's a perfect match, really. That's really uh, yeah. genius. No. Like peanut butter and jelly. Folks, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> listen to the podcast, but when you watch the movie, you'll know you agree with me. Anyway, so <laughs> I have a a Twitter and Letterboxd account under Pastor Matt. Our, um, you don't need to watch Dark Star. Um, anyway, all right, folks, thanks it's for listening. Subliminal. Very nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> be sure to hit us up if you will be at Joe Bob's Drive-In Jamboree. Uh, we yeah. are putting together a meetup. So on Friday morning, Jackson and I have tickets for Thursday and Friday. But Friday morning, we're putting together a breakfast. And so if you're a fan of the podcast or you're a podcaster, we've already got lots of hits on that. Um, we're going to put together a breakfast get together. So I know that Ian West is going to try to be there. Dave, Dr. Shock Becker is going to try to be there. Nathan, you're going to try to be there. And I'm trying to talk Jackson, my wife into it right now. There you go. So we're <laughs> going to try to try to be there together. We're trying to get Greg and Pearl up there as well. So if you can be there, just let me know. Send me a direct message, and so that I know how many seats to reserve. Well, uh, so seeing as I'm camping, the smoke signals work. Sure, <laughs> man. go for it. Um, Use and, the Brundle and, machine and just yeah. go on over. <laughs> Yeah. It'll show uh, up like half uh, waffle, half human or something. Exactly. <laughs> but just send us a message, you know, uh, depending on the size of the group. If it's a reasonable size, look, you won't have to pay for a dime. You just need to show up. So anyway, Jackson, say goodbye to the good people. Uh, goodbye, and remember, if you're going to enter an arm wrestling competition, Section 18A of the handbook clearly states that genetic man manipulation through splicing fly genes into your own DNA is expressly prohibited. <laughs> <clears throat> Anyways. <laughs> All right, until next time, remember, the family that watches horror together slays together. See ya. Once again, I want to thank the great people over on Patreon, Dave Becker, Greg Bench, Ryan Bratton, Dan George, Ian Urza, Kevin Corpy, James McFeeders, Ashley Pinkert, Greg Amortis and Pearl from LOTC, Joel Robertson, Brian Scott, Amy Swan, and Trey Whetstone. Thank you all so much. You make this podcast possible. decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a, a cannoli after all. Waiter! <laughs>